You know, singing that song that the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. It's one thing when you come together in church around other believers and the relative security and comfort and freedom in this part of the world. I don't know about you, but during these last couple of weeks, when you look at the news, you see what's happening in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. You wonder, is God reigning there? Is, is he in control? Does he, is he doing something? What can we do to partner with and to help and support? Some of you have asked that question. Uh, and and I want to just tell you, we support a number of things. One of a missionary couple, Matt and Sarah Titus, living in the Czech Republic. They're uh, preparing now to receive an influx of refugees coming through Poland to the Czech Republic. And we'll talk to you more about what they're doing. Uh, our denomination, Converge, has the Ukrainian Relief Fund, uh, supporting churches and Christian organizations uh, help refugees as well. And then some of you know, a number of years ago, we support a ministry uh, called Stephen's Home. And at Advent, we help build that home. It's a home for um, special needs young men who are now adults. They're no longer eligible to be part of the care system of the country in Ukraine. And they're in a city called Kherson. Maybe you've heard about that in the news. Just above the Crimean Peninsula. Now under Russian control. So I just want you to know that home that you helped financially contribute to build is now a place of refuge for, this, for Christians in Kherson. Not just the men of Stephen's home and the workers there, but people from the community who are gathering in the basement to worship and to pray. And they sent us a couple of pictures here. This is, this is the basement of the home that Chapel Street helped pray for and build with some of the residents of Stephen's home and others there gathering now to seek shelter and to pray. So you, what you do, sometimes you don't know. Like you write a check and you wonder, does it make a difference? It's making a difference. Your prayers make a difference. So we'll tell you more about what God is doing and how you can participate with them as we go. Let's bow now and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we do sing from our hearts, hallelujah, praise to you, the Lord Almighty, and you reign. And if we're honest, sometimes we, we forget that you're reigning. Sometimes we even resist your reign in our own lives. We right now lift up our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. In all parts of the world, but specifically there, many fleeing for their lives, some staying in the face of evil and oppression. God, strengthen them, protect them, Preserve their lives. Strengthen their faith that it might be a light to people who are in desperate need of hope. Lord, we also lift up our hearts and we cry to you that you, who are the Lord of all nations, and you tell us in your word that you make wars cease to the ends of the earth, and so we pray and plead that you would make this war cease, that you would stop the evil schemes of men, and that you would bring hope and peace to Ukraine, to Russia, to the United States of America, to all, every corner of this world. Thank you for the privilege of coming before you in worship and lifting our voices and knowing that you hear us. Now, Lord, speak to us through your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're in a series, as you know, called Following the King. We started this back in the fall. We took a little break for Advent and the new year, and now we're back in following Jesus right up to Easter uh, and his resurrection. What does it mean from the, the gospel of Mark to follow the king with our lives? So you'll see here, following the king. Let's move on from this one if we can. There we go. And I want to talk to you about this image, which we'll try to make sense of in a minute. Do you know what this image is? Anybody know? From the movie Titanic. Who's seen Titanic? Anybody see it in the theater? Remember theaters? They were a thing one time right? I remember when I went to see the movie Titanic, this is the scene of Rose, who's an old woman at the end of the movie, holding the heart of the diamond, uh, heart of the ocean diamond in her hands, what they say is worth $400 million in the movie. And you know what she does with this? She throws it in the ocean. Some of you saw that and thought, how romantic, and you cried. Let me just tell you, you're wrong. That is not romantic. That's crazy town. 
I remember watching this thinking, somebody stop this woman. She's losing it. Stop this. The $400 million in the ocean. Jack is not worth it. That fling, that fling from your teenage years 60 years ago is not worth it. What are you doing? Right? Did anybody else feel that way? It was just me. Maybe I'm not romantic enough. That question, is it worth it? Or, or is he worth it, more specifically? Is it the heart of the story we're going to examine from the Gospel of Mark? What and who is worth something of that, that costly in our lives? Now, last week, well, we looked at uh, chapter 13, and it ended with the, what we call the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus on the Mount of Olives giving this long, complicated, uh, and sometimes confusing uh, discourse about the end times. And the main message that we heard was that the Pastor Sterling preached to us and Pastor Brian over at South Street and at our North Aurora campus. The main message was this. You don't know the day and the hour, so stay awake. And stay awake doesn't mean try to decode. Try to figure out based on current events when he's coming. Stay awake means focus on your king. Follow your king. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what it means to stay awake. And then chapter 14 begins with a very different tone. So chapter 13 ends with he's coming back and it's gonna be triumphant and glorious. And chapter 13 ends, the mood shifts. Or chapter 14 begins, excuse me, the mood really shifts a different tone at all. We, don't, we see um, things getting darker. He's entering into now, chapter 14 and following, what scholars call the passion of Christ. Not, not just the movie by the name, but the passion. The passion refers to all the events surrounding his betrayal, arrest, trial, beatings, and crucifixion. Suffering and death. We don't tend to connect the word passion with suffering in our culture. But it is because of his passion that he suffered these things. And that's what we're heading into now in chapter 14 and following. Let's read the first couple of verses of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be any uproar from the people. This is, it's interesting, isn't it? Chapter 13 ends with these words. What I say to you, Jesus says, I say to all, stay awake. Chapter 14 begins with a plot to kill him. So you stay awake literally means stay awake, alert, be watchful of what's going on. Of course, we know later in the Garden of Gethsemane, literally stay awake, and they were falling asleep. But the plot to arrest and kill Jesus. And what's interesting is you read through the Gospel of Mark. I don't know if you have your Mark journals, if you've been following along with us, and you read through these events. From now until, the, until his crucifixion, it feels like, from the human perspective, like the world's falling apart. There's betrayal, there's arrest, there's a trumped-up trial, there's beatings, there's crucifixion, the death of your man. It all feels like chaos and confusion if you're one of his followers. But from God's perspective, everything is proceeding according to plan. It's all been prepared. The triumphal entry was prepared. The Mount of Olives was prepared. The Passover meal, the place to have it in the upper room was prepared. All these things are God has prepared ahead of time. So I think that's important for us to keep in mind. Sometimes to us, living on earth, it feels like it's chaos and confusion. But that's not how it seems to God's perspective. It's hard for us to grasp how that goes. But it does. Okay, look at, let's look at verses 3 through 9. Because as we do this now, we're going to look at the, at the end of this portion. Chapter 1 and 2, the plot to kill Jesus. Or verse 1 and 2. Verses 10 and 11 is Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. So those are connected, right? The plot to kill him is connected to the agreement to betray him. 
But then tucked in the middle is this section we're going to read, which feels like a strange change of subject, but it's not. Let's read three through nine. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now this is, it's interesting, isn't it? You got the plot to betray him, or to kill him, the agreement to betray him by Judas, and in the middle there's this weird dinner party where Jesus gets anointed with this woman with a bunch of perfume or ointment. What's happening there? John's gospel gives us a few more details about this unique dinner party. Let's look at John chapter 12, verses one through two. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Okay, so a little more detail. Let's talk about this dinner party. Jesus is in Bethany. Bethany's just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is spending his days in the holy city of Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. He's teaching about uh, his kingdom. Uh, he's, and, people, and the plot is growing. Up, and the word about him is spreading. And in the evenings, he, he goes outside the city and stays in Bethany. Presumably, he stays at the home of, of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Lazarus was the man Jesus raised from the dead. Mary and Martha are Lazarus's two sisters. You might remember the story, right? Mary is uh, sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, and Martha uh, is the one who's busy doing the dishes and serving, and she's annoyed that her sister isn't helping. Ancient families were a lot like our families. Well, here he's at another dinner party at Simon the leper's house. First of all, that's an unfortunate nickname, Simon the leper. He's not actually have, doesn't actually have leprosy, or they couldn't be at his home. It'd be illegal. He's clearly somebody Jesus has healed before of leprosy. So can you imagine the dinner party there? Simon's like, man, it was such a drag when I had leprosy. Jesus healed me. Look at this. I have a home, and I can invite all my friends. And Lazarus is like, yeah, that's nothing. I was dead. Dead, dead. Not mostly dead, but all dead. And Jesus raised me to life. You know, and Mary and Martha. Martha's probably serving and, and stressed out, and Mary's not helping again, you know. So. so Jesus is there. And Mary comes in and does something that's the, that is the center of what happens in the story. She brings an alabaster flask of pure nard. The King James says spike nard. Spike nard is a, is a, it's a think about the most costly essential oil and then multiply it times 100. It comes from a region in the Himalayas in India. It had a very pungent aroma. Now, in the ancient world, people, they, they didn't have, you couldn't take a shower every day, or a bath every day, and so there was a little bit of a different kind of aroma, I imagine, at dinner parties. So it was very normal for you to anoint someone with a, with a, a sweet-smelling fragrance at the party. And nard, spike nard, this costly nard, was the most expensive you could buy. It was, the, the very smell of it um, sort of gave off the... Um, uh, the impression of this is the best we have to offer, the best of the ancient world. Maybe like a Tiffany diamond, like the be very best of that culture. And she brings this alabaster flask. Alabaster itself is expensive, and she has this flask, and it's full of this very costly 
ointment and she breaks it and she pours it out all over Jesus. And what she does is the center of what the whole story turns around and what it means and how people respond and how Jesus responds. We're told that it's worth 300 denarii. Could have been sold for 300 denarii. That you might wonder, well, what's, what's the, remember the denarius? Jesus asked for denarius when about the question of paying taxes to Caesar. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So 300 denarii was roughly one year's wages for the average worker. The average annual household income in Kane County is over $80,000. Let's just use that as a rough number. 80 grand smashed and poured out in an instant. No wonder people are like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? Like Rose with the heart of the devil. What are you doing? You're throwing that away? That's wasteful. That's not a good use of that much money. It's a huge amount of money. And it is an act of extravagant devotion to Jesus. It's an act of worship. In fact, that's what worship is. Extravagant devotion. Worship is not sing time once a week. Worship is, is, is giving what someone or something is worth. The word worship, worth-ship, is it, what is this person or thing worth? Clearly, she saw something about Jesus that others didn't, that he was worth it. In the Old Testament, worship involved a sacrifice, bringing an offering. In the New Testament, we're told in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we are to offer our bodies, our whole selves, as living sacrifices, that this is our spiritual act of worship. Worship still involves a sacrifice, an offering of my whole self. When we come and sing a few songs, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's just a little bit of what worship is. She's there at this dinner party, and she does something that shocks everyone. And she's presented to us as a model for what it looks like to worship Jesus with extravagant devotion. She's given to us as kind of an example. And I wanna look at three characteristics of her act of extravagant devotion to Jesus. First, extravagant devotion to Jesus is visible to others. This might sound obvious, but it's very common today in our culture for people to think along these lines. You know, your religion, your faith is your private business. Keep that to yourself. That's okay to, to believe what you believe. If it's true for you, if it works for you and your family, that's fine. But that's really something you keep in private. You're, you, you worship in private. You don't really put that on display in your public life. Now, the New Testament tells us your life is your worship. So how are you gonna keep that private? If offering my body is my spiritual act of worship, how do I do that privately so no one else knows? This is not to say that what she does, she does to be seen by other people. She's not pouring out the flask so that she gets the attention and praise of people, but she does it in public. It's seen by others. Look at verses three through four again. And while he's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask. That's an interesting phrase. She broke the flask. She didn't just dab a little bit out and pour it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? We'll get to their objection in a minute. But it's seen. She is not doing it to be praised by other people, but here's what I think is happening. She is so caught up in the wonder, majesty, and glory of who Jesus is that she's not really even paying attention to who's watching. She's not really even aware of that. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been so overwhelmed 
by just the magnitude of who God is and the wonder of his love that you sort of forget your surroundings. You sort of stop worrying about what people think. I think for most of us, that's sadly rare. We're conditioned in our culture to live with sort of a background awareness that we're being watched. Social media fosters this, right? We're, there's, there's curated images that people are, are, are watching and we want to keep ourselves under control and measure up to sort of some subjective standard of what we think other people think. What we think other people think. What a terrible way to live. <laughs> have, have you ever been so overcome by the love of God for you that you stop thinking about the people around you? Not caring for them, but that you're not concerned with what they think of you. You're only concerned with Jesus. That's the moment here for her. Most of our lives, we temper or hide or tone down our faith for fear of what others would think. Second, extravagant devotion to Jesus will look foolish and be criticized by many. If you're gonna be sold out for Jesus, I don't mean a respectable Christian who comes to church a couple times a month and gives a little bit and serves a little bit and says that you're a believer but doesn't really invade the rest of your life. You'll be fine. Nobody will bother you. But if you're gonna be sold out for Jesus, I mean, this is my identity, this is my life, this is what I'm about, there will be some who won't get it. There will be people close to you and far away in culture and, in, and, and friends and even family who will go, what, what are you doing? You don't really believe that, do you? You're not, that, that doesn't feel, you're not really, I mean, you don't believe all that. You're not really basing your life on that. First Corinthians chapter one, verses 24 and 25, Apostle Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, who is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. Later in chapter four, he says, we are fools for the sake of Christ. Let's look at verses four and five again of the text of the story. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? That's an interesting phrase. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So the objection is, this is a wasteful act. Jesus is going to say it's a worshipful act, but the people think this is, you are wasting your life. Now, most likely, this alabaster flask was an heirloom, something she received from the family, passed down, because you only use a little bit of this ointment for the, for the aroma and the smell, and it was so costly, you wouldn't pour it out like that. That would be unthinkable. And so she's probably received it from her mother, who received it from her mother, and it's something precious to the family. And she smashes it and pours it all over his head. It is shocking what she does. And they're doing the math in their heads. This doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. And the word scolded is a Greek word that means to flare your nostrils. When I was a kid, my dad, when he would get upset with me, he wouldn't yell. He would just go, like that. I just, excuse me. Right? Just, just breathe through his nose. It would un oh, I felt so, like I could feel his. This is not exactly what's happening here. They're snorting at her. It's ridiculous. That's the image that the word means. God, what are you doing? What are you doing? What a fool. What an idiot. What are you doing? That's the tone of what's happening in the story. You want to be sold out for Jesus and live your life as an extravagant devotion to him. There will be some people who will look at you and think you are a fool. You are an idiot. This makes no sense. 
even those at the party. Remember who's there. These, these are insiders. These are Jesus people. These are those that are close to Jesus, been healed by Jesus, raised from the dead by Jesus. They're the insider club, they're invited. Sometimes, even in the church, if you want to live your life in extravagant devotion, some people are going to be like, come on. Years ago, a good friend of mine, when I was youth pastor, would, he, started, he and his wife were volunteering in our ministry, and he said to me, you know, in my experience, people don't really change. Religion's good to a point, but people don't really change. Five years later, he had sold his business and his home and moved to Ecuador to become a missionary. <laughs> I think God was just messing with him. You know? <laughs> I remember also a couple of years ago that I got to know in our church, they attend a different campus now, but he said when he began to be serious about his faith, he, he, wanted, he said, okay, I, I know I need to reorient my life. And he heard a message on, on tithing. If you don't know what tithing is, that's the Old Testament principle of 10% of, 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 our, of our income should go back to the Lord. It's a starting point for generosity. By the way, just as a point of reference, the average church-going Christian in America gives less than 3% of their annual income. So 10% feels like a big jump. But in the, in the, in the scriptures, it's like the baseline. And he decided, we're going to do that. And they never really had given much of anything. We're going to give 10%. And his wife said to him, that's ridiculous. She snorted, right? She scolded. She said, what are we going to live on? God's grace? <laughs> and he's like, mm, yeah, I guess, you know. You want to live a life of extravagant devotion to Jesus. You can't do that privately, and some people aren't going to get it. Nobody wants to be thought a fool. Nobody wants to be snorted at. Let's look a little closer at this act of extravagant devotion of Mary. Um, she pours out this, this ointment, right? What's the rule of thumb for an engaged man, a man who wants to get engaged for uh, the price you spend on, a, on an engagement ring? Isn't it, they say, three months salary? When I got engaged, I was unemployed, so I don't know how that applies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Here, honey, I got out of a cereal box, right? But they say around three months' salary is, uh, is, the, is, the, is the measure for buying an engagement ring. Think about that. Three months' salary to buy a ring to give to the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And wearing a diamond, it's kind of a crazy thing. Like, what's the, what's the use of a diamond? What do you do with it? What, what, what good is it? Just sits there and looks, gets snagged on stuff and looks shiny. But what do you actually do with it? But it's, it's not, it's the symbol of this, I'm giving my life to this person. It's a symbol of my promise. This is how, this is how precious she is to me or he is to me. This is why they matter. It's a symbol of that. Devotion. I'm asking you to be my bride. Put that in context, right? For what she's doing. They say it looks crazy. But which is crazier, really? If you stop and think about it. Which is the crazier thing? Is it crazier to say, I'm going to pour out the very best that I have in devotion to my Savior, to the King of all the earth, to the Judge of all the world, to the Lord of lords, the Creator of all that exists, the one who made me in His image, who has claim over my life? It makes sense that I would pour this out. Or, or is it crazier to say, no, 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 I'm going to keep back most for me and just give over what I think I can spare? Which is really the crazier thing? It's... The crazy thing would not be to do that, which is what we do. And I'm not just talking about finances here, friends. Talk about our lives. I hold back part of my life for me, and I give a little bit of what's convenient to him. What looks or seems foolish or crazy from a human perspective is actually beautiful to God. That's exactly what Jesus says. 
Extravagant devotion to Jesus is never a waste. Never. Mary was not crazy. I remember a man years ago who said to me, he, he, had, he had built and sold several businesses worth multiple millions of dollars, and he was very, very generous to the church and to other Christian causes. And he, this is years ago, and he was investing in the, um, our student ministry, and he said, I, I need you to tell me that I'm not crazy, Pastor Jeff. I said, okay, you're not crazy. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, well, you gotta understand, my ex-wife, who divorced me because she is not a believer, um, thinks I'm nuts for giving away this much money. My business partners don't understand because they're not believers. They think I'm crazy. My accountants think I'm crazy. But most of my world thinks I'm insane for being this generous. So just every now and then, would you tell me a story of somebody getting their heart changed, of someone being transformed so that I remember I'm not crazy? I said, I can do that. We'll get together and I'll do that. Third, extravagant devotion to Jesus will be remembered. Extravagant devotion to Jesus will be remembered. Jesus has some remarkable things to say about this woman's act of devotion and worship, and he silences those who criticize her, and he praises her, and then he says something about what's really going on there that's fascinating. Let's look at verses six through nine. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. To me. For you always have the poor with you, Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. That's an interesting phrase. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory. If we just back up one slide. Go one slide back, please. There. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Let's talk about verse seven, what comes next. The poor you'll always have with you. Some have used that phrase as an excuse for not caring much about the poor. See, Jesus says it's not that important. What matters is, my, is, my, is, is, is coming to church. No, it's, let's be clear. Jesus is not advocating that we can be indifferent to the poor. You have to take all of the scriptures and what Jesus teaches, and it's overwhelmingly clear that Jesus' heart is for the poor, and so should his followers' hearts be for the poor. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, this is a unique moment in salvation history, and she gets it. What he's saying is, intimacy with God should precede activity for God. And some of us replace activity for God for intimacy with God. This is the great commandment. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The order matters. Love for the poor, love for neighbor, flows from love and devotion to God, not the other way around. That's what he's saying. He's saying she gets something that you're missing. And it's not a zero-sum game with Jesus. They say this money is wasted, this, this ointment, because it could have been sold and given to the poor. It's not like Jesus is going, oh no, now how are we gonna feed the poor? Because you poured that out. Now what I, I, what's plan B here? It's never a zero-sum game. When you pour out your life, the best of who you are and what you have in devotion to Jesus, he honors that and multiplies that. More is happening there than you realize. Why does Jesus say they will not always have him with them? You will not always have me. Isn't Jesus omnipresent? Isn't he God Almighty, always everywhere present? 
Yes. Doesn't he say in Matthew 28 after his resurrection, before his ascension, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age? Yes. So what does he mean? You won't have me. He's talking about physically. He is headed to the cross and he knows it. To pay for the sins of the world. To conquer sin and death by his resurrection and to ascend to the Father. He's saying this season, this moment when I have been incarnated in the flesh in the world is coming to an end. And everything hangs on the crucifixion and the resurrection. She has anointed my body beforehand. Go to the next slide. Do you think she knew? I've been wondering this this week. Did she know that Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world? I don't think so. The text doesn't tell us that. I think it's possible, but I think it's unlikely. I think what she knew is Jesus is worth the very best that I have. So she pours it out. And Jesus says, when you do that, God does something that you don't even see. He's doing something with her gift for the ages, anointing his body beforehand for burial, which you'll remember he was taken off the cross before the, the Passover came and, or before the Sabbath came and put in the tomb. It wasn't, there wasn't time to anoint him. The woman had to come after the fact to anoint his body. And they found the tomb empty. She's doing something that God had prepared ahead of time. Remember, he's prepared. Everything's moving according to his plan, though it feels like chaos and confusion to us sometimes. And then he says, she did what she could. That's a phrase I want you to focus on. She did what she could. She couldn't go to the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and negotiate them a plea bargain for his release or for them to give up the plot to kill him. She didn't have that kind of influence or privilege or authority or power or wealth. She couldn't raise an army to defend Jesus against his enemies. She couldn't do that. What could she do? Well, she could give the very best she had in worship and devotion to him and trust him with the rest. She did what she could. Just do what you can in devotion to Jesus. In verse nine, it's an amazing statement. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel's proclaimed, down through the ages, she's, Jesus is saying, I'm not gonna let you forget about her. This, this simple woman is our model for extravagant devotion to Jesus. Jesus says, of all the people at the dinner party, all the big shots, she's the one who got it and no one's gonna forget that. And we're still talking about her today. Mary is held up to us as a model for what extravagant devotion to Jesus looks like and she's also given to us as a contrast with another character at that party, Judas. Verses 10 and 11 tell us the story of how Judas agreed to betray. And we also find out something from John's gospel about who was there and what was going on. John 12, verses four through six. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who's about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Mark just tells us that they, they argued. We find out from John that Judas was the one who first brought it up. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's no accident that the anointing at Bethany and Mary as the example of extravagant devotion is put right next to Judas and his agreement to betray. You'll remember how much he agreed to betray Jesus for? Anybody know? 30 pieces of silver. 
Do a little digging on the exchange rate of 30 pieces of silver versus denarii. That's about 100 denarii, slightly less than 100 denarii. So a little under a third. He agrees to betray his master for a third of what she pours out in worship for her master. There's an important contrast here. You, you cannot, I think the two, the two stories tell us this, and I've been wrestling with this in my own life, because honestly, sometimes, you, don't, you may not know this about pastors, but we, we don't have it all together. <laughs> he laughed. Yeah, we know, right? Some, sometimes um, when I'm preaching a text and I feel like, am I living this? Am I living a life of extravagant devotion sold out to Jesus? Or just pretending like I am? I want to be. But I think in this text, it tells us there's really only one of two options. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we're either gonna pursue the path of Mary, pouring out the best I have in devotion to my, my master, or I'm gonna sell him out. You're either sold out or a sellout. I mean, there, there aren't, there's, we like to think that there's some middle ground where, yeah, I believe, but I, you know, sort of, I, but I keep that reasonable. There's no reasonable faith, right? There's no, like, in terms of the world's view in Scripture. We kid ourselves to think there's some, some middle ground where we can, you know, I, I love God and I believe in God, but I, but I, you know, I hedge and I protect and I really am about my agenda most of the time. Let's look at this comparison chart, actually, between the two. Mary was a woman with no real standing in that culture. Judas, one of the 12, an insider, gave what she could to Jesus, took what he could get for Jesus. Mary blessed her Lord. Judas betrayed his Lord. Mary loved her Lord. Judas used his Lord. Mary did a beautiful thing. Judas did a terrible thing. Mary served him as her savior. Judas sold him like he was a slave. Mary is remembered, notable for her devotion, and we remember Judas, notorious forever for his betrayal. I don't think there's an in-between, friends. I think we want to believe there is. I don't think there's somewhere in between. And I don't mean you're perfect, but it means choose a path. Pick a direction for your life. Let me ask you a question. What's your alabaster flask? What's the thing that, that is precious to you that you treasure, which perhaps you should break and pour out because it's actually the thing holding you back. What's that thing that you would pour out to Jesus in devo extravagant devotion to Jesus? But you think, oh, I don't know if I could give this up. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And look at this line, gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Timothy Keller says this in his commentary on this passage in Mark. Every treasure on earth says, give up your life to purchase me. Career, possessions, everything is saying you must pay the price to acquire me, to have me, to accomplish this. Jesus is the one treasure that says, I gave up my life to purchase you. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, just a few weeks ago we looked at this, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now let me ask you, talk about math not adding up. Does it make sense that the God of the universe, the Holy One, would give up himself for you? 
Does that math add up? Is that a good exchange? For sinful, broken humanity, that the perfect and holy God would send his son into the world to die in our place? That seems wasteful. That seems foolish. If you were a perfect being advising God, I think you would say, don't do it. They're not worth it. But that's not how God's economy works. Everyone at that party is looking at Mary thinking, on the world's terms, this doesn't make sense. And Jesus is going, exactly. My kingdom is different. Just look at my son. Does it make sense to the world that he would come in and give up his life to purchase you, offer himself as a fragrant offering, die in your place? No, that doesn't make sense. It's not a good exchange, but that's who God is. You're worth it to him. And he is ultimately worth it. I think one of the great challenges for us living in the Chicagoland suburbs. Now, we worry about gas prices, and they're high, I know, and inflation, but let's just be honest. Our life is comfortable compared to most of the world and most of human history. Is that we, we just settle in to this middle-of-the-road thinking that we can live somewhere between Judas and Mary. And we miss out on what Jesus has for us. We are the losers in that equation. Jesus is not saying, give me your whole life in extravagant devotion because he's demanding and angry and wants to take something from you. He wants to give something to you, himself. And we're the ones who lose if we won't pour ourselves out. Let's pray together. Jesus, this ancient story is so convicting to me. We thank you that you would not allow Mary's name to be forgotten or the example of her act of devotion to be forgotten and that even today, in 2022, we can look at her life and feel your spirit move in our hearts, calling us to live the same way. Each one of us is clutching some alabaster flask of reputation or career or possessions or whatever it is that we think we have to have and it's the very thing that holds us back. So Lord, help us by your grace to break that flask and pour out our very selves in devotion to you. Because in emptying ourselves, we gain what could never be taken away. Lord, if living for you means we lose a, a relationship, what we gain in relationship to you is infinitely greater. If living in extravagant devotion to you means we should lose our very lives, you've given us eternal life. And this life pales. It's nothing without you. So we thank you and we praise you, Jesus, who poured yourself out on the cross. You held nothing back to ransom us. Amen.